I'd like to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We will be there in just a moment. Take time to add my welcome to each and every one of you. Appreciate you all being here, especially our visitors. It's good having you with us this morning. We appreciate you coming our way and being a part of our worship this morning. We seek to worship God simply by the way the New Testament tells us to do so. And we hope that that is uh, the outcome of our worship. We are here to please God. Simply that. Our God is described in many ways in Scripture. One of the simplest and most profound ways comes from the Bible reading we had just a few moments ago from John chapter 4. Verse 24, the end of that reading, it says, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. While we understand this simple teaching about God being spirit, Scripture also speaks about God in human terms. We look in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Of course, here we understand that the our is the plural form, speaking of the Godhead, the three parts of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it says there, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. In verse 27, it says, and God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So we understand about being made in God's image. But many scriptures tell us about God involving the human parts of the body. In Isaiah 40, in verse 5, it says, Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We read about God's face and his eyes and his ears. In Psalm 34, verses 15 and 16, it says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Deuteronomy 5 and verse 15 says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm. In Exodus 31 verse 8 and Deuteronomy 9 and verse 10, both speak of the same thing, of of God writing on tablets of stone. Those things include the Ten Commandments. It says that those things were written by the finger of God. A few moments ago in Steve's prayer, he mentioned that the blessing is coming from the hands of God. Why are these passages written this way? If we talk about God being spirit, which it says there in John 4, verse 24, why do we speak it? Why does the Bible speak of him in, with these human terms and these human attributes? The Hebrew word that is translated image there in the Genesis passage means likeness or semblance. We understand that in the image of God, the likeness of God. There are some other passages that help shed some light on on what this means. In Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29, it says, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright. 
but they have sought out many devices. Now, he's not talking about man walking on two legs. He's talking about the morality here, making men upright. He's speaking of their morality. A couple of other passages to consider. Ephesians 4, verses 23 and verse 24 says, and that you were renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. There's that word again, likeness. Colossians 3 and verse 10 says, and you have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So the image or likeness here is not referring to physical characteristics, but spiritual ones. But our physical bodies are certainly not alien to him. After all, he created us. We speak and see and hear. We have a face. He's created us to do all of those things. He's created these attributes within us. And he has these attributes as well. Now, certainly we can't equate ourselves with God. We would do ourselves a grave disservice if we try to do that. But we make the point here that we have those same abilities to see and to hear and to speak. We share that with our creator. But the very fact that God has created us, and given the fact that the, the, the creator has the power and the authority over the created, it means that he speaks to us in terms that we can understand. So if he describes himself as having eyes or ears or face, or hands or fingers, so be it. Romans 9 and verse 20 says, Who are you, O man, that answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make them this way, will it? This last part might sound a little bit familiar to you, because we made this point last week in Acts chapter 17. That's why I ask you to turn here. I want to take something from that lesson and make a point here. In Acts chapter 17, where Paul brings this message to the, the, the people that are gathered there at the Areopagus, on Mars Hill in chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. So if you're there in, in Acts chapter 17, let's look at those two verses. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. It says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temple made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And these two verses is what I want to focus in on from this lesson from last week. For this week's lesson, I want to call your attention to this comparison, this contrast that Paul draws out here in this little passage here, these two little verses. That is the idea of something being made without hands and something being made with hands. So let's get start off by considering this idea of things made with hands. In verse 25 there it says, Neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. 
The point Paul is making here is that God is the creator of all things. We know that. It's a simple thing for us to understand as Christians, as children of God. God is the creator. We look there in Genesis 1 about the creation. In six days, he created all the things that we have around us. And the point is that the creator has no need to be served by the things that he created. We also made the point last week, and I'll make it again, is God desires our service. God desires our worship. He wants us to do those things, but he doesn't need it. Look over a couple passages in Acts chapter 19. Turn over there a page or two in your own Bible. Acts chapter 19, beginning verse 23. It says, And about that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. And you see and hear, not only here in Ephesus, but, also, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Gods made with hands are no gods at all. There were people that were making their living carving these graven images to Artemis, to Diana, who had that great temple there in Ephesus. There were people who were making their living carving things with their own hands. But what does Paul say about them? They're not gods at all. How could they be? How can the created thing then be served by the creator or the creator? Yeah, I got that right. <laughs> Why would you create something and then worship it? Of course, this idol worship was not new to New Testament times. It's been around a very, very long time. Look over in Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2. Idol worship is something that has been around for a long, long time. It plagued the children of Israel as they were steeped and understood all the idol worship that took place in Egypt and all the idol worship that took place in the land of Canaan. And that would be something they would battle throughout their entire history, starting with the golden calf there at Mount Sinai. But Isaiah 2, in verse 8, it says, Their land has also been filled with idols, they worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. So, compare this to what we read over there in, in Acts chapter 19. There was problems over there because there were people who were making their living carving images. The problems here were the children of Israel and the lands that they lived in, the graven images, the idols that were there. And of course we know that God has no tolerance for idols or for idol worship. We know that from the Ten Commandments. And in fact, he mocks them. He mocks idol worship and idol worshipers because the people made these things with their hands, and like I said, then they worshiped them. Look over in, in Isaiah 44. 
Isaiah 44. I, I think there's no better example of this than what we read here. And this is several verses long, and I'd like to read all of it. I encourage you to pay attention as we go through this and understand what God is saying about idol worship. Those who, beginning in verse 9 of Isaiah 44, those who, uh, who fashion a graven image, all of them are futile, and the precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with a strong arm. He also gets hungry and his, his strength fails and he drinks no water because, uh, and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He intends uh, a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works with the planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. And he also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. And he makes a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this he, ca he eats meat and roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god. His graven image. And he falls down before it and worships it. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me. For thou art my God. You see how futile this is. A man making a tool, cutting down a tree, using part of the tree to warm himself and to bake his bread. And the other part of the tree, he carves into an image like a man, and then he worships it. How silly is that? At the end of verse 20, he says, I fall down before a block of wood. God mocks those who would worship idols. And we understand why. We are to have no gods before him. He is Jehovah God. These gods are no gods at all, as Paul says. So we come to the New Testament. Look in Mark chapter 14. <clears throat> Mark chapter 14. We're going to see a contrast here about things made with hands and things made without hands. Mark chapter 14 and verse 58 says, We heard him say, speaking to him here, Jesus, we heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Now understand the context of, of, of this here. This, these are Jesus' accusers that are saying this. Jesus himself said in John 2 and verse 19, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's what he said. Of course, we understand John goes on to say there in verse 21 of John chapter 2, he was speaking of the temple of his body. 
He was not speaking of the temple where the, the Jews worshipped. People thought he was, about, he was talking about tearing down the temple and rebuilding it. But he's not. He was talking about the temple of his own body. But they were putting words in Jesus' mouth, the accusers here. But it's funny, they actually got something right. This idea of things being done without hands. They said, we heard him say that you tear down this temple with hands and I will build another one made without hands. They actually got it right. So let's consider for a moment this idea of things made without hands. Look over in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. If we remember our studies in the Old Testament and understand who Daniel was, he was a prophet. He spoke of things. He interpreted dreams. He interpreted dreams for King Nebuchadnezzar. One of those dreams that Nebuchadnezzar had was this great statue. So here in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 31 beginning, here's Daniel speaking to the king, telling him what his dream was. Verse 31, Daniel chapter 2. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, that statue which has a large, uh, was large and extraordinarily splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, and its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue at its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed, all of them at the same time, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. But the stone that was struck from the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. We look over also in verses 44 and 45 of Daniel 2, an explanation of the dream, Daniel says here, and in, the, and in those days, the kings of God, the kings, and in those days, kings, the God of heaven will set up the kingdom, which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, and the great God has made known that the king will. Uh, to the king this will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. In this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, of course we know the statue represents the kingdoms that would come. And in the days of those last kingdom, it says a stone will be cut out of the mountain without hands. And it will crush not only that nation but all the other nations. Now this stone could be considered several things, considered in several different ways. It could be considered the will of God, the providence of God, God's plan. But also could be considered, and all those things are indeed embodied in Jesus Christ himself. Back over to the New Testament, back in Matthew chapter 21. Turn there with me, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, beginning verse 42. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. We understand about Jesus that he would be the one to come and establish the kingdom. And while this stone crushes and turns nations to dust, it is also the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. Look over in Ephesians chapter 2. This same stone that crushes can be thought of in this way also, that it's the cornerstone. Ephesians 2, beginning verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the, with the saints and are of God's household, having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This idea of this stone cut out without hands, crushing the nations, and establishing a kingdom which would never go away which would never be defeated, which would never be destroyed. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom that Jesus Christ instituted. So this idea of a temple without hands, I mentioned that Jesus' accusers in their accusation, maybe they heard Jesus say that. We don't have it recorded for us in the gospel, those exact words. Jesus said, you tear down the temple, in three days I will raise it up. What they said, he said, was you tear down this temple made with hands and I will build another one made without hands. And the idea of a temple made without hands is scriptural. We read there from Acts chapter 17, verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in a temple made with hands. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Acts 7 and verse 48. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. A couple of passages from Hebrews 9. Verse 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And in verse 24 it says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So this idea of a temple not made with hands is the temple of God. It's the kingdom of God. It's God's household. So when those accusers said that, they got it right. Of course, Jesus was talking about his body. But the temple made without hands is the kingdom of God that Jesus himself came to establish. A couple of other things just to talk about this idea of things done without hands. In Colossians 2 and verse 11, it talks about a circumcision made without hands. It's a circumcision of the heart. We know from from Old Testament times, the circumcision was a covenant that was made between God and Abraham and those that would follow after covenant that we have under the New Testament. We have a covenant with God now. 
It's made with the circumcision of the heart. That is, not made with hands. That is, it is a cutting away of the old self and walk in newness of life, as we talked about around the table. Also, something done without hands. In 2 Corinthians 3, and verse 3, speaks of something that is written on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. And that, of course, is the law of Christ. That's written on our hearts. That's done without hands. We understand that from Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 10. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. This is a prophetic, prophetically spoken, the Hebrew writer quoting it in his writing. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Believe it or not, this is a paring down of all the things we can talk about, about made without hands. But do you see the point? The Bible tells us that portions of God's will are carried out through humans. Think about people like Noah and Abraham and Moses and Rahab and Solomon and Esther. Think about God's plan being woven through the lives of those people and the decisions that they made. Those are things done by human hands. But there are some things that God does not entrust to human hands. There are some things that are done without hands. And since we are made in his image, since he is our creator, he knows what we're capable of and he knows what we are incapable of. And when it comes to God's ultimate plan of redemption, his ultimate salvation of mankind, we see him performing things without hands these great and powerful things that are done that only he could do. We see him using Jesus to crush the nations and to set up the kingdom that would last forever, a stone cut out of a mountain without hands. We see him and eventually all those who are faithful to him dwelling in that temple. And it's a temple what? It's made without hands. Those who are obedient to him receive a circumcision of the heart, which is made by his hand, not by ours. And we know the will of God, not because it is written on tablets of stone, but because it is written on our heart. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God wants us to know that. He wants to write that on our hearts. It's an interesting study, interesting thing to think about from the couple of little verses there from Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, when Paul makes a distinction between God being served by hands and not being served by hands. Because he is the creator. He is the God of all. He is the creator of everything around us. And he is not served by human hands.
So the question comes down to then, are you a child of God? Do you believe that God is the creator? Do you believe that he holds the life of everyone in his hand? And that Jesus Christ upholds all things, as we learn about from Hebrews chapter 1. You're not a child of God, and you're out of the kingdom. You're not a part of that great kingdom that, that the Lord has set up. And I encourage you to, to become a part of that. And it means believing in what you've heard. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It tells us that from John 8 and verse 24. Having heard and having believed the message of the gospel, understand that there needs to be a change in your life. That you need to repent. Acts 17 and verse 30 says, God is declaring to all men everywhere to repent, having overlooked the times of ignorance. There's only one way to come to the Father, and that is through the Son. And God is asking, declaring, demanding that all people repent. And it makes, the next step is making a confession. Matthew 10 and verse 32, everyone therefore who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. That good confession of understanding and letting men know that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And upon that, you are a candidate to be baptized. Mark 16, verse 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. That is the only way that we come to the Father. And upon that, our further duty is to live life in the kingdom. To live life under the direction of God's will. In his own, his only. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. It says from Revelation 2 and verse 10. If you are subject to the gospel call, you can let that be known. If you're as a child of God, you have slipped and you need the prayers of this congregation. You can let your request be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.